Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This is the 107th episode, entitled Reform Around the Edges. It's difficult living in the modern world to understand the late medieval norm that a state had to have but a single religion for all of its subjects. You'd be hard-pressed to find a European of the 16th century who didn't assume that that was the case. About the only group who didn't see it that way were the Anabaptists. And even among them, there were small groups, like the extremists who tried to set up the New Jerusalem at Munster, who did advocate a state church. Mainstream Anabaptists advocated a religious tolerance, but they were persecuted for that very stance. As we've seen in the story of the church in Germany, and as was hammered out in the Peace of Augsburg, peace was secured by deciding some religions would be Lutheran, others Catholic, by the principle of cuius regio, ius religio, meaning whose realm, whose religion. The religion of a region's ruler determined that region's subject's religion. Under Augsburg, people were supposed to be free to relocate to another region if the ruler's region didn't square with their convictions. Now, that sounds simple enough for moderns who are highly mobile and have little sense of the historic connection between identity and place. Many think nothing today of packing up and moving to a new place across town, across the state, the nation, or even some other part of the globe. Not so most Europeans for most of their history. Personal identity was intimately connected to family, and family was identified by location. That's why for long periods people had surnames identifying with their town. John of Loxley, William of Orange, Fred of Filsbury. Families built a house and lived in it for many generations. Losing that home to whatever cause was one of the great tragedies that could befall a family in the Middle Ages. It was a betrayal of previous generations that had handed down both family name and home, as well as all of those future generations who would now have no home to call their own. On the surface, the Peace of Augsburg sounded like a sound solution to the religious conflicts that raged after the Reformation, but it was in fact a highly disruptive force that ultimately helped spark the Thirty Years' War. The wars of religion that washed over Europe in general, and France in particular, is evidence that the rule that a region could have but one religion wasn't workable. Even the Edict of Nantes, passed by the French King Henry IV after the bloody St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, only guaranteed the survival of French Protestantism by granting a number of Protestant cities as enclaves in an otherwise Roman Catholic realm. We've given a thumbnail sketch of the spread of the Reformation over Germany, France, England, Scotland, and the Low Countries, and in Scandinavia. Let's take a look now at Spain. Before the Reformation reached the Iberian Peninsula, many hoped that the Spanish church would lead the way in long overdue reform. Queen Isabella's faith was earnest. She and Cardinal Jiménez de Cisneros implemented a massive reform, including a renewal of biblical study centered on the Complutensian Polyglot Bible. Today, a polyglot is known as a parallel Bible, where multiple versions of the Bible are arranged in side-by-side columns for comparison. But in a parallel Bible, these versions are all of the same language. A polyglot is the comparison of different languages. The Complutensian polyglot had the Hebrew, Latin, and Greek texts of the Old Testament, as well as the Aramaic of the Torah. The New Testament was both Greek and Latin. Spain also had many humanist scholars similar to Erasmus, some of them at high places who longed for reform. The arrival of the Protestant Reformation saw attitudes in Spain change. 
at Worms, the upstart monk Martin Luther defied the Emperor Charles V, who just happened to be Charles I of Spain. Charles became the champion of opposition to Protestantism. The Spanish Inquisition, previously aimed at Jews and occultists, turned its attention toward those that were calling for reform and anything that smacked of the now dreaded Lutheranism. Several leading humanists fled to places like the Low Countries where they were welcomed. Others stayed in Spain and tried to lay low, devoting themselves to their studies and hoping that the storm would pass them by. The Inquisition wasn't able to halt the Lutheran contagion, as it was called. Valladolid and Seville became centers of reformation despite frequent burnings at the stake by the Inquisition. A monastery in Santa Poncha, near Seville, was a reform center where Bibles and Protestant books were smuggled in barrels labeled as oil and wine. When one of the smugglers was captured and burned, a dozen of monks fled, agreeing to meet in a year in Geneva. One of them became a pastor to a Spanish congregation there. Another, Casiodoro de Reina, spent the rest of his life translating the Bible into Spanish, a recognized masterpiece of Spanish literature released in 1569. A few years later, another of the twelve, Cipriano de Valera, revised Arena's version, which is known as the Reina Valera Bible. Back in their monastery in Santa Ponche, and throughout the area around Seville, the Inquisition cleansed the church of all trace of Protestantism. And so we hop over now to Italy. Among the inaccessible valleys of the Alps, some more reachable parts of northern Italy and southern France, the ancient community of the Waldensians continued a secluded but threatened existence. They were repeatedly attacked by armies hoping to suppress their supposed heresy. But they'd long stood firm in their mountain fastness. By the early 16th century, the movement lost steam as constant persecution suppressed them. Many among them felt that the price paid for disagreeing with Rome was just too high, and increasing numbers returned to Catholicism. Then strange rumors were heard. News of a great reformation arrived. An emissary sent to inquire about these rumors returned in 1526, announcing they were true. In Germany, Switzerland, France, and even more distant regions, dramatic changes were afoot. Many of the doctrines of the Reformers matched what the Waldensians had said since the 12th century. More delegations met with leading Reformers like Martin Bucer, who warmly received them and affirmed most of their beliefs. They suggested some points where they differed, and the Waldensians ought to consider revising their stand to bring it into closer alignment with Scripture. In 1532, the Waldensians convened a synod where they adopted the main tenets of the Protestant Reformation. And by doing so, they became the oldest Protestant church, existing more than three centuries before the Reformation. Sadly, that didn't make things any easier for the Waldensians. Their communities in southern France, whose lands were more vulnerable than the secluded Alpine valleys, were invaded and virtually exterminated. The survivors fled to the Alps, then a series of edicts ensued, forbidding attendance at Protestant churches and commanding attendance at Mass, while Denzian communities in southern Italy were also exterminated. Large armies raised by the Pope, the Duke of Savoy, and several other powerful nobles wanting to prove their loyalty to Rome repeatedly invaded the Waldensian mountain enclaves, but only to be routed by the defenders. On one occasion, only six men with crude firearms held back an entire army at a narrow pass while others climbed the mountains above. When rocks began raining on the invaders, they were routed. Then, in what has to be a premier, can a guy catch a break moment, when the Waldensians had prolonged respite from attack, a plague broke out, decimating the population. Only two pastors survived. 
Their replacements came from the Reformed centers of Switzerland, bringing about even closer ties between the Waldensians and the Reformed Church. In 1655, all Waldensians living in northern Italy were commanded, under penalty of death, to forfeit their lands in three days, as the lands were then sold to Catholics, who then had the duty to go and take them from recalcitrant rebel Waldensians. In the same year, the Marquis de Pianeza was given the assignment of exterminating the Waldensians. But he was convinced that if he invaded the Alps, his army would suffer the same fate as earlier invaders. And so he offered peace to the Waldensians. They'd always said that they'd only fight a war of defense. And so they made peace with the Marquis and welcomed the soldiers into their homes who were fed, housed against the bitter cold. And we would think, well, that's a lovely story, isn't it? Well, wait, it's not over. Two days later, at the prearranged time, the guests turned on their hosts, killing men, women, and children. This, quote, great victory, as it was called, was then celebrated with a tadam, which is a short church service of thanksgiving to God. Yet still the Waldensians resisted, hoping that their enemies would make peace with them. King Louis XIV of France, who ordered the expulsion of all Huguenots from France, demanded that the Duke of Savoy do as the Marquis had done with his Waldensians. This proved too much for many of them who left the Alps to live in Geneva and other Protestant areas. A few insisted on remaining on their ancestral lands, where they were constantly menaced. It wasn't until 1848 that the Waldensians and other groups were granted freedom of worship in Italy. Ah, time for a breather, we'd hope, but again, it was not to be. Because just two years later, famine broke out in the long-exploited and now overpopulated Alpine valleys. After much debate, the first of many Waldensian groups left for Uruguay and Argentina, where they flourished. In 1975, the two Waldensian communities, one on each side of the Atlantic, made it clear that they were still one church by deciding to be governed by a single synod with two sessions, one in the Americas in February and the other in Europe in August. The Waldensians weren't the only Protestant presence in Italy. Among others, Juan de Valdez and Bernardino Ochino deserve mention. Valdez was a Spanish Protestant humanist of the Erasmian mold. When it was clear that Charles V was determined to wipe out Protestantism in Spain, he fled to Italy in 1531, where he settled in Naples and gathered a group of colleagues who devoted themselves to Bible study. They didn't seek to make their views public and were moderate in their Protestant leanings. Among the members of this group was the historically fascinating Julia Gonzaga, a woman of such immense beauty that the Muslim ruler Suleiman the Great tried to have her kidnapped so that he could make her the chief wife of his already huge harem. Another member of the group, Bernardino Ochino, a famous and pious preacher, was twice elected leader of the Capuchins. Ochino openly promulgated Protestant principles. When the Inquisition threatened him, he fled to Geneva, then went on to Basel, Augsburg, Strasbourg, London, and finally Zurich. Ochino's journeys from city to city marked a concurrent journey from biblical orthodoxy to eventual heresy. He became ever more radical, eventually rejecting the Trinity and defending polygamy. Another reason he moved around a lot. He kept getting kicked out of town. He died of the plague in 1564. And now we take the Communio Sanctorum train to Hungary. At the beginning of the Reformation, Hungary was ruled by the 10-year-old boy King Louis II. A decade later, in 1526, the Ottoman Turks defeated the Hungarians and killed him. The Hungarian nobility elected Ferdinand of Habsburg to take the throne while the nationalists named John Sigismund as king. 
After complex negotiations, Western Hungary was under Habsburg rule, while the East was Ottoman. Stuck between West Hungary, ruled by devoted Catholic Habsburgs, and the East, ruled by Muslim Ottomans, was Royal Hungary, known as Transylvania, where King Sigismund managed to carve out a small holding. Sigismund knew that religious division would weaken his already tenuous hold on the realm, and so he granted four groups equal standing. Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, Calvinism, and Unitarianism, which we'll take a closer look at when we consider Poland. The Ottomans, ever seeking to weaken the powerful Habsburg, supported whichever one of the four was the weakest in that central kingdom, so that it would continue to cause trouble to the others and so weaken the entire realm. If that group then began to gain power and influence, well, the Ottomans would switch their support to the new underdog. Lutheranism reached Hungary early. There's evidence that Luther's 94 Theses circulated in Hungary only a year after their original posting in Wittenberg. By 1523, the Habsburgs ordered Lutherans to be burned to prevent their spread. And a few years later, Zwingli's teachings entered the scene, and similar measures were taken against them. Though Ottoman rule was harsh and atrocities were committed against all Christians, it was in the territories occupied by Ottomans that Protestantism grew most rapidly. Hungarians preferred the Reformed tradition coming out of Switzerland to the church government advocated in Lutheranism. They already suffered under a highly centralized government. In the Swiss Reformed tradition, pastors and laity shared authority. Also, this decentralized form of church government made it more difficult for Ottoman authorities to exert pressure on church leaders. Records make it clear that Ottoman authorities accepted the appointment of parish priests on the condition that the congregation pay if the priest was arrested for any reason. And so priests were often arrested and freed only when the bribe was paid. Both Habsburgs and Ottomans tried to prevent the spread of what they called heresy by means of the printing press. In 1483, long before the Reformation, the Sultan issued a decree condemning printers to have their hands cut off. Now the Habsburg, King Ferdinand I, issued a similar ruling, except that instead of having hands amputated, printers were drowned. But that didn't stop the circulation of Protestant books. Those were usually printed in the vernacular, the language of the common people, climaxing in the publication of the Caroli Bible in 1590 and the Visoli Bible in 1607, which in Hungary played a role similar to that of Luther's Bible in German. It's estimated that by 1600, as many as four out of five Hungarians were Protestant. Then conditions changed. In the early 17th century, Ottoman power waned, and Transylvania, supported by Hungarian nationalists, clashed with the Habsburgs. The conflict was settled by the Treaty of Vienna, granting equal rights to both Catholics and Protestants. But the Thirty Years' War, in which Transylvania opposed the Habsburgs and their allies, brought devastation to the country. Even after the end of the war, the conflict among the Habsburgs, Royal Hungary, and Ottomans continued. The Habsburgs eventually gained the upper hand, and the Peace of Karlwitz in 1699 gave them control over all of Hungary, a control that they retained until 1918 and the end of World War I. In Hungary, as elsewhere, the Habsburgs imposed virulent anti-Protestant measures, and eventually the country became wholly Catholic. We end with a look at Poland. When Luther posted his theses on that door in Wittenberg, there was already in western Poland a growing number of the followers of the pre-reformer Jan Hus, Hussites, who had fled the difficulties in Bohemia. They were amped by the prolific work of the German monk. The Poles, however, had long been in conflict with Germans and distrusted anything coming from such a source. 
So Lutheranism did spread, but slowly. When Calvinism made its way to Poland, Protestantism picked up steam. The king at this time was Sigismund I, who vehemently opposed all Protestant doctrine. But by the middle of the 16th century, Calvinism enjoyed a measure of support from Sigismund II, who even corresponded with Calvin. The leader of the Calvinist movement in Poland was Jan Laski, a nobleman with connections to a wide circle of people with reform leanings, including Melanchthon and Erasmus. He purchased Erasmus's library. Exiled from Poland for being a Calvinist, he was called back by the nobility who'd come to favor the Reformed faith. Lasky translated the Bible into Polish and worked for a meeting of the minds between Calvinists and Lutherans. His efforts led to the Synod of Sendomir in 1570, ten years after Lasky's death. The Polish government followed a policy of greater religious tolerance than most of Europe. A large number of people, mostly Jews and Christians of various faiths, sought refuge there. Among them was Faustus Socinius, who denied the doctrine of the Trinity, launching a group known as the Unitarians. His views were expressed in the Rakovian Catechism, authored not by Socinius, but by two of his followers. Published in 1605, this document affirms and argues that only the Father is God, that Jesus is not divine but purely human, and that the Holy Spirit well, that's just a way of referring to God's power and presence. Throughout most of the 16th century and well into the 17th, Protestantism, as affirmed in the Synod of Sendomir, had a growing number of Polish followers, as did Socinian Unitarianism. But as the national identity of Poland developed in opposition to the Russian Orthodox Church to the east and German Lutherans to the west, with both Russia and Germany repeatedly seeking to take Polish territory, that identity became increasingly Roman Catholic, so that by the 20th century, Poland was one of the most Catholic nations in Europe. This brief review of the Reformation around the edges of Europe reveals that within just a few decades of Martin Luther's time, the ideas of Protestant theology had covered the continent and caused large-scale upheaval. What we haven't even considered yet is the impact of the Reformation even further east. In a later episode, we'll take a look at the impact that it had on the Eastern Church. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.